You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Romans, Romans, Hebrews, what in the world? Hebrews chapter 6. And today we really are looking at one of the most challenging and difficult and shocking passages, not only in the book of Hebrews, but in the entire, I'd say probably the entire Bible. Hebrews 6 is one of those passages that unless you are preaching through the book of Hebrews, you would never, ever think to preach it. No one would ever go, yeah, it's Christmas. Why don't we look at Hebrews 6 today? It's Easter. Let's look. This is one of those passages that is so gritty and so difficult to read and to go, what is happening here that you would never look at it. This is why it's really good for us to preach through books of the Bible so we encounter all of God's word. And so as we do every week, if you're new and if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we'll actually begin in chapter 5, verse 12 to get a little context of where we're at. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the floor around you. You can go on your device and find the English Standard Version. That's what I'm reading from. Chapter 5, uh, verse 12, and we'll read all the way through 6:12. And the Spirit says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us. Help us now to look at your word and to hear what it is that you have to say to us, Lord. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is the Spirit is saying 
to the church. Help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. There was a leader in a college ministry that I once served in. Loved theology. Loved to serve others. He was kind, funny, gentle. Loved being around him. He even lived with us for a little bit when a tree fell on his house while it was being renovated. And fast forward a few years, he now hates Christianity. Thinks it's made up. And thinks we're all idiots. He was a drummer, I knew, a leader in a ministry. Amazing testimony of liberation from drugs and alcohol. You fast forward a few years, he's abandoned his wife and he's abandoned his faith. A worship leader I knew who traveled and played in churches and he would raise his hands in worship. He would even sit among us in the early years of our church and raise his hands in worship and wanted to be a worship pastor. And now he's an atheist, hates Jesus, and despises the Christian way of life. I mean, I could go on and on and on with these kinds of stories of people I know. So what happened to them? What happened to them and everything that we saw and everything that they did and all the experiences that we shared in together, what happened? This passage tells us what happened. Hebrews 6 is a flare gun. It is a flashing light. And in some ways for us, it will be a vitamin injection to everyone in this room. Does this passage mean you can lose your salvation? It sure sounds like that, doesn't it? You read this and go, those who have fallen away, it's impossible for them to repent. I mean, it really sounds like you can lose your salvation. And I think it's meant to sound that way. You cannot and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think it is meant to jolt you. It's meant to make you perk up and to listen and go, what is going on in this passage? What is it meant to jolt you out of? Well, what is the writer of Hebrews concerned with? If you've been with us the whole time, we see this often. First, he is worried that the Jewish Christians in this church, that they are thinking about abandoning Christ and going back to Judaism because it's protected. And he's been warning them constantly, you cannot go back and think you'll be safe. And if, let's say, let's say I was gone for three months on a mission trip. And uh, most of the elders, we all went. And I get an email from a deacon in the church or from another leader. And they're saying, something bad is happening here. There's a movement happening where people are thinking about joining the Mormon church. I would be emailing, calling, Skyping. I'd be back on a plane and I would be saying some very aggressive language saying you cannot do that and think you'll be safe. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's trying to jolt them and show them you cannot go back that way. Secondly, he is really worried. The writer of Hebrews is what Lawson talked about last week at the end of his message that it's really what we read at the beginning of this morning. He doesn't want them to stay spiritual babies either. He's worried that they've stunted their spiritual development. And this is a good warning for those of us who've grown up in this area or we've attended more Bible studies and Sunday school classes than we realize. 
we've memorized and still know Ice Ice Baby, and we binge Netflix, but we can't still seem to integrate Scripture into our lives. We can't still seem to repent of sin and to walk in holiness. And this isn't about mere knowledge. This is going on into maturity. And we know that. Look at the end of chapter 5. Look at verse 14. He says, solid food is for the mature. For those who are the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. Okay, when we hear that, we've got to be careful. Because Bible Belt area people, we hear the word discernment, and we automatically think, okay, this is how you tell who's a false teacher. This is how you tell between good doctrine and background. And that is true. But he's giving a broader and a more expanded definition of discernment. What is it? Who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil to choose between holiness and wickedness, to choose between following Christ and choosing sin. This is maturity. Maturity is not just knowledge. Maturity is choosing to follow Christ and your character being conformed to Christ more than just knowing, oh, that's true, that's false. That's real maturity. So are you moving on toward maturity? This is what the first section, look at verse one of chapter six Therefore, as he talks about this choosing good versus evil, distinguishing good from evil, therefore, now he ties them together, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Oh boy. That is a alarming phrase. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. So how does that square up with being Christ-centered? We talk about everything here at Redeemer, about doing everything with the gospel at the center. And we have a sign on the highway that says, it's all about Jesus. Is that still right, according to this verse? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ? Should we go spray paint on the sign, we are leaving Jesus? I mean, I wrote a book on living a gospel-centered life. Should we chunk them all? And should we have a book-burning party here at the church? Of course not. That's not what the writer of Hebrews means. This is actually a great verse to support the truth of Jesus being at the center of everything, of Christ's power and Christ's model and the message of Christ being the core and being the fuel of our lives. Here's why. The word elementary here, let's leave the elementary. We hear that and we think easy, simple, baby, elementary, my dear Watson. Those are kinds of things that we think of, but that's not what the word means. The word means kind of like elementary school, beginning, starting, introductory. So he's saying the introductory things that you you hear about Jesus when you become a Christian, let's, let's keep moving along. Let's go further up. Let's go further in. This is not about abandoning the truth of Christ. Rather, this is about integrating the truth of Christ into your entire life. It's not about leaving it behind and abandoning Christ. Rather, it's moving along with them. Leaving the simplicity, yes. Leaving the only focus on this, yes. But expanding with them into your life. That's real Christian maturity. Seeing your whole life expand with the truth of who Christ is and the truth of his cross and the, and the truth of his resurrection. And it's, you, you see it all throughout the New Testament. It's a husband loving his wife like Christ loves the church. It's, it's expanding. 
and his life. For example, how many adults in here, how many of you are still practicing your ABCs every day? Okay, good. No show of hands. I'm relieved. Of course you're not. The only time you do is when your kid asks, what's after G? You're like, G, A, B, C, D, F, G, H, H. And do, that's the only time you rehearse them. So no, you don't practice them. You don't carry phonics cards with you, wondering how to pronounce A at different times and E at different times. How does E, I sound? You're not doing that because you already know. So have you moved on from just focusing on those? Yes. Have you abandoned them? No. They're at work in your life. You've integrated them into your life. You've grown in them. They're actually a part of your life now. This is what he's after. It's time for the teachings of Christ, what we know about Jesus, him being God, him being our Savior, him being the only way, his forgiveness. It's time that we learn how to live for him from what we know, how to live with him, how to choose good over evil because of who Jesus is, and teaching others to do the same. That's what he says in chapter 5. And I love the example he gives. And these, for Jewish Christians, remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians, and these are some of the fundamental things that they would have had to work through at the beginning of their faith. Look at what he says, verse 1. Let's go on to maturity, leaving the elementary things, the beginning things. Well, what were some of the beginning things they had to work through? I, you, could, you could almost write this as a list form after that comma, after maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This, this was their initial repentance from death to life. From the empty sacrifices they offered at the temple, the dead works, and, towards, and turning from those offerings towards what? Faith toward God. Believing God is the way of salvation. Believing that Jesus really did die for my sins and rise again from the dead. And the next one, the next list, verse two, and instruction about washings. So in the Jewish, in the Judaism, in, in, in that religion, there were all these purification washes. All these kind of things you would do at the temple to be pure, to be cleansed. And so they would have to teach these Jewish Christians, no, you don't have to do that because Christ has cleansed you. His blood has washed you clean. And the next one in verse two, the laying on of hands. This is the, they taught them about community life, being brought into the fold, being brought into the church. Some people think this is about baptism. And then he says, in the teaching of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, teaching them, here's what your eternal life will be like. Here's what's going to happen at the end of your life. These are all kind of the basic beginning things that were taught to these Jewish Christians. So what he's saying is, look, stop praying the sinner's prayer over and over again. You don't need to keep laying the foundation. You lay the foundation once and then you build. You don't keep kicking the tires on the cement truck. You got it. You got the foundation. Now let's go forward. Let's go. But these believers are dragging their feet. They're being lazy. Their Christianity isn't expanding. And that's what maturity is, expanding. So I think today, if the writer of Hebrews was writing to us, what he would say to people in our area and churches like ours is, let's move on from only knowing John 3.16. Let's expand. We're not leaving it behind, but we're building on it. Let's move on from just knowing the Romans road. I mean, these are awesome verses. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the Romans road about all the different ways, all these great verses in Romans about being saved. Amazing. But God has also given us 700,000 plus. He's given us way more that we could know to love and to live. We, we need to be warned of being 
getting caught on the hamster wheel of fake maturity. And it comes in a lot of varieties in our area. I think he would say something like, let's move on from rededicating our lives over and over and over. I get so irritated when I hear the local Christian radio or our church talk about, oh, we had 14 rededications this week. Okay. What they should say is we, we heard of 14 people repenting of their sins and finding a fresh zeal to follow Christ again. But if you get caught in this, oh, I need to rededicate, you could say, oh, I need to be baptized again. No, you don't. Unless you weren't really baptized if you didn't really believe the first time. Let's move on from only praying before meals and praying the same rehearsed automatic prayer. God, thank you for the food. Uh, bless you to nourish one of our bodies and our bodies to your glory, Lord. Amen. That's classic Pharisee prayer. Either pray from the heart or don't do it at all. But don't pray and think your spirits are praying that same thing and move on from that. Let's just move on from saying God is love and yet being unloving to people in your own house. You see, he's like, we got, we got to move on from some of the beginning things we've heard. And we've got to press on towards maturity. Are you pressing on toward maturity? And life lived for Christ and life lived with Christ and for the honor of Christ. Look, if you've been born again, just like you were born as a human, you don't live in the labor and delivery room of the hospital. You move on. You haven't stopped being a human, but you keep growing. I've never seen a man cave or a lady's craft room that was only filled with toddler toys. Can you imagine if someone in one of your small groups or invited you over for a Super Bowl party? Like, hey, come over, man. We're hanging out there. Oh, great, I'm coming. And you go into their house, and their living room is nothing but ABC books, texture books, learning how to stack, shapes, and they don't even have a toddler. It's all that soft furniture. There's little things on the corner so they don't hurt their heads. And you would think, something's wrong here. And they show you, oh, I got, this new, I got this new gadget this week. Look at this. You pull it, and it does the farm animal. You try. Be like, like, okay, man. But look, we've grown as adults. You know the ABCs. You're not stumbling when you read. You're not shocked anymore that a cookie sheet is hot when it comes out of the oven. You've learned. You, you've You've integrated that truth into your life. Oh, that birthday candle, oh, that's hot. I don't touch my birthday candles at 32 anymore. I've learned fire's hot. I've integrated that truth into my life. It's same for your Christian walk. You don't abandon the things at the beginning. You integrate them. They get lived out in your life, and you distinguish good from evil, and you teach others to do the same. So what is God teaching you? Where is God teaching you to obey him, and you're not listening? Are you listening to him? And I love that he says in, in verse four, in verse three, and this we will do if God permits. So we know that it's God that it will give the growth. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. But we humbly come before God and say, God, change me. Would you grow me in your mercy and grace? And we can't boast. And so if you're sitting here and thinking, oh yeah, I've I'm, I'm definitely moved on to maturity. You haven't. As even the apostle Paul says, I'm still straining forward. Mature people that have growing and are growing in Christ, they're the most humble because they know, they are aware of their complete inability to function without Christ. 
Are you aware of your complete inability to function without Jesus Christ in your life? These verses, they're meant to wake you up out of your spiritual laziness, kind of a thunderclap, kind of a rattle, and, and to soothe you at the same time. Because if you aren't growing, how do you know you have the foundation in the first place? And this is why he gives one of the most shocking warnings in the New Testament, verse four. For it is, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a scary sounding section. An alarm is going off in these verses. And it's really two kinds of alarms depending on the two kinds of hearers. For some, these verses are an alarm clock that you must wake up. You must repent. You must get out of your spiritual stupor. You must turn from your laziness and turn towards following Christ, your great God and Savior. For others, these verses are a siren of destruction. That destruction could be headed your way. That you're headed on this path Maybe. So who are these people that Hebrews is talking about right here? What have they done? That they've been enlightened and they've tasted the heavenly gift and they've done all these things and now it's impossible for them to repent. What in the world have they done? These are people like the ones I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon. They were a part of the church. And the people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, they were a part of the Christian community. They were there. But look at the words he uses to describe these people. Notice what he never says about them. This is almost as significant as what he does say about them. What he doesn't say about them is he never calls them saved. He never calls them justified. He never calls them sanctified. He never calls them born again. He never calls them made new. He never calls them cleansed. He never calls them heirs of the promise. He doesn't use any of the classic New Testament words. He never calls them brothers and sisters. He never uses any of the classic New Testament words to describe a Christian, their identity, and their heart in Christ. What does he describe? He describes experiences. He describes experiences. Experiences that Christians have. But these are experiences that also unbelievers can have just by sitting in here. What does he describe? Look with me at verse four. Those who have been enlightened, they've learned about Jesus. They've learned about Christianity. They've learned, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, cool. He fits the prophecies. They've learned God's word is true. They've learned, oh man, Christianity teaches Jesus is the only way. Okay, great. They've been enlightened of what the Bible teaches. They've seen the truth. Okay, great. I, I see what it says. Next. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They experienced Christian community. They interacted and engaged with Christians. I mean, there was love and there was kindness. There was humility given back and forth. They were served. Something, this could even mean the Lord's Supper. They took it. And I think there's a real tie-in to what we read earlier in the book of Hebrews of how the people from the nation of Israel who went through the Exodus, just because they experienced the Exodus, they still didn't enter the promised land. And they tasted the manna that came down from heaven. 
They experienced all kinds of things, but they didn't receive the promise. Next one says, and they shared, verse four, last one, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They were really a part of what God was doing in the church. They were there, shared. You could say they participated in the gatherings. They sang. They would raise their hands. Maybe they served the poor. They did all these kinds of things. And people with spiritual gifts, real Christians, they, they served them. Five, and they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They experienced great sermons. They heard good teaching. They, they heard the word of God and they, they tasted the word of God. They, they saw how it made sense. It does make sense to not let a root of bitterness get in your life. It makes sense to not be selfish. It makes sense to love your neighbor as yourself, of course. These people, they've gone through Christian experiences, but they are not Christians. This is a scary reality that you can experience so much of the Christian life, of the external experiences, and not really be saved. And if you don't think that's true, like, well, I don't know. I can mention one name. There's a bunch of names in the New Testament that would prove it, but just one, Judas. He experienced everything Thomas did. He experienced everything Peter, James, John. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus feed the crowds. He saw Jesus heal people. And he did not believe. This is like being in a fantasy camp. You can go to like these athletes' fantasy camps. You're there. You can pal around and do all this stuff, but you're never really in it. And this is all throughout Jesus' teachings. There's goats among the sheep. There's bad plants and good plants. There's good soil, bad soil. This is right here in verses seven and eight in chapter six. There's some land that gets the rain, crops produce, but others, nothing. And I'm sure these people thought they were Christians too, like a lot of people in our area. So I want, to, I want you to hear loud and clear. You cannot lose your salvation, but you may show everyone that you never had it. If you are really born again, and you are really in Christ. You cannot lose your salvation, but you may show, man, I never really had it. Because if you are saved, if you are a believer, you will never do what you are about to see. You will never do what these people did. So what did they do? What did they do that now it's impossible for them to come back? What did they do that they've fallen away? What is it? Did they do some big sin. Maybe they committed adultery too many times. Maybe they lied too many times. I mean, what was it that finally this sin broke Jesus's back and he said enough is enough? That's not what happened because Christ's back was already broken. He has already took it all. He's already said it is finished. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's not what happened. So what happened here is very important to see. You see this, the whole passage will make sense. Because usually what happens with this passage, if you're familiar with it, we focus on they were enlightened, the taste of the heavenly gift. We focus on all those experiences or we focus on they've fallen away. Oh, we hone in on that. Oh, it's impossible. But that's not what we should be drilling down into. What is it? Verse six, they have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Here's why. Do not miss this. Since, here's the reason, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. 
and holding him up to contempt. This is it. Here's why it's so tragic and so awful. It's like they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm. The people, here's what it means. The people in this community, yes, they've bailed, they've turned on the Christians, they've turned on the church, and they've done more. They have said, instead of saying, yes, Jesus died for me, he died for my sins, he, he is my Savior, they have turned, and now they're saying, give me the hammer. Give me the nails. I'd crucify Jesus all over again. He deserved it. He's nothing more than a poser, an imposter. He's no Messiah. He's no Christ. He's nothing. I'd crucify him all over again. I'd be in the crowd yelling, crucify him. This is a joke. This is nothing. They don't believe. They know clearly what Christianity is about, and they hate it. God is saying they're not going to come back. This is not a casual disregard for Christ. This is blasphemy. This is wishing they would have been there to rip out his beard, wishing they would have been the one to drive the spear into his side. This isn't just being a prodigal. This is being a Judas. And look at what he adds. Crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. holding him up. They want, holding him up, they want everyone to see what a joke, what a loser they think Jesus is. Instead of evangelizing for Jesus, they're now the anti-evangelist. They want everyone to, they're evangelizing an anti-Jesus message. Can you imagine you feeling this way? That you'd want Jesus to be crucified again? Can you imagine you saying from your mouth to someone, I wish I had been there on Golgotha and I would have helped them because he is no Messiah. Can you imagine saying he deserved to be crucified? That he wasn't crucified for your sins? That he wasn't paying for your sins? He wasn't granting you forgiveness, but he was crucified because he was a liar and he was an agitator and an imposter. If you are a Christian, you cannot imagine yourself saying such a thing. It makes me sick to my stomach to imagine that I could say, I could never say that and believe it. And if you are in Christ, neither could you. It would grieve you and it breaks your heart to imagine that someone would think such a thing about Christ. Because you know, he did not deserve it. I did. He did not deserve the wrath of God to be poured on him. I do. So who is Christ to you? Is Jesus your Savior? Do you believe that Jesus really did die for your sins, that he really did rise from the dead, and that he gives you new life with him? If not, you are in danger. You can turn and you can believe today. If you are a Christian, follow him. You can press on and walking with him, choosing holiness, turn from wickedness. And I think that's the real design of this passage. This tragic warning. Do you see how this passage is designed? It is designed for every Christian to hear this, 
to hear what I was just saying, someone wanting, wishing Jesus was be, to be crucified, and it stokes your love for Christ again. And when I was studying this week, it refreshed my heart to look at it and go, no, Jesus didn't deserve to be crucified. I did. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. This warning is meant to shock you out of your sluggishness and to give you a fresh desire to follow him again. That's verses 9 and 12. Look at verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, though I am saying some harsh, strong things, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. He says, for you, church, I'm confident there are better things for you. Things that belong to Christ, things that belong to salvation. So he looks at them and says, look, I think now you're going to walk in a fresh zeal for Christ. You see his great love for you and you're loving him in response, treasuring him, cherishing him in response. So you too, Redeemer Church, those that I know, those that we've prayed with, those that we've served together and know you and to know your love for Christ, I am sure that there are better things for you. This passage is designed to awaken you, to stir you on to love him. There's an old Puritan phrase that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So the same passage, for some of us, it has softened us. Going, man, Jesus loves me so much. He's done so much for me. I want to follow him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. He's giving me my whole life back. And some of us hear this passage and we go, this is ridiculous. It's getting hard. You're worried about the state of your soul. Listen, if you know Christ, it's because God knows you. He loves you. He sees what you do. And he's calling you to do more for his glory, more for his namesake. Look at what he says, verse 10. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. You see that love that you've shown for his name? So this love flowing, growing, and serving the saints as you still do. So he says, look, God sees you. He sees your fruit. He he sees your work. God sees your ministry toward one another. God sees your secret prayers for your brothers and sisters. He sees your genuine love for one another. And listen, I, as one of the pastors here, I desire for all of us and all the elders, we desire this for you. And God himself desires this for you right here in verse 11. And we desire, here's what God wants for you from this passage. That each one of you, every person that's in Christ, in this room, this is what God is calling us to. We desire each one of you to show Manifest, live the same earnestness, zeal, passion, desire to have the full assurance, the expanding of hope until the end. I desire that each one of us would crank up our passion and kill our sluggishness and to live high-octane, cranked to 11 for Christ until the end. No more sluggishness. No more foggy commitments to Christ. 
No more lazy, Americanized, Bible Beltian Christianity, but real Christianity. Look, I know some of you, you've tried a Bible reading plan this year and it's already died. That's okay. Start again tomorrow. Start new. I, who cares what the date says? Well, it says January 7th on there. I don't know. Who cares? Ignore the date. Start again. I'd rather you take three years to read the Bible than to only read half of Genesis every year. Start again. Pray again. Confess again. Repent again. Pursue holiness. Forsake your sins. Press on to honoring Christ. Press on to give patience to your kids. Grant forgiveness to your spouse. Extend hospitality towards those in your neighborhood, those that are coworkers, those who don't look like you, those who don't act like you. See your evangelism expanding and exploding in your life. How? How will you develop this passionate walk with Christ? How will you press on into maturity? One easy step, verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish. Okay, I don't want to be sluggish. What should I do? Here's exactly what you should do. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you desire that kind of Christianity, passionate, pursuing Christ, expanding to the edges of your life, one step, imitation. Not sure where to begin? Imitate. Imitate the faithful around you. If you really respect and admire a group leader, imitate them. Copy them. This is exactly what Paul says. Imitate me, he tells the church of Corinth. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you have Christian friends that you admire and you respect, imitate them. I do. I am chronically thinking, what would this person do? I want to imitate that. Pastors you admire, respect, imitate them. In the scriptures, those who through faith and patience, who have inherited the promises, who imitate Paul, imitate John, Peter, John the Baptist, Timothy, Lydia, Phoebe, Priscilla and Aquila, imitate these brothers and sisters. Listen, for every story of a worship leader or pastor who's faked it on stage and turned his back on Christ, there are a thousand more stories of people living faithfully, following Christ. Imitate them. For every Judas, there's 11 others who are following Christ faithfully. Imitate them. Let's passionately, together, press on and look to Christ together, looking away from sin and looking to our Savior. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.